So it turns out that Mike Pence finally got his way, with Representative Trent Franks on his way out of the House thanks to unearthed accusations of him literally asking his staffers to carry his babies. <laughs> Looks like America's finally going full Handmaid's Tale. I'm being totally facetious, of course. Now, most of the Capitol Hill bad boys would have avoided these messes if they had just listened to the much maligned Mike Pence rule, but welcome to 2017, where logic doesn't matter. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth, and this is The Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. After a week of CNN retracting bombshell news stories about Donald Jr. and Gloria Allred retracting yearbook inscriptions, you'll need it. It's been a bad week for old men, but not for old fashions. So that's what we'll be drinking tonight as we cover sex scandals on the hill, what this podcast is all about, and SCOTUS taking on the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. So let's dive right in. Amidst the sexual harassment scandals that have been dominating the news cycles as of late, this week we saw these allegations handled in absolutely polar opposite ways, with the Democrats' handling of Senator Al Franken on one side, to the GOP's handling of Roy Moore on the other side. For those of you who are not in the loop on this yet, Senator Al Franken has been accused of sexual misconduct by numerous women, with these allegations ranging from inappropriate hand placement to forced kisses. Meanwhile, Roy Moore, who is a candidate running for senator in Alabama, has been accused of sexual misconduct and child molestation by eight women. In fact, the Washington Post just said, this is the, this, the last time this many U.S. lawmakers resigned, it was over slavery. What do you make of this, Tiana? I mean, it's clearly a moment of reckoning, but let's be real, it's political expedience on both sides. I mean, as early as, or as late as this morning, Mika Brzezinski at MSNBC was pointing to the fact that Leanne Tweeden, the first Al Franken accuser, was a Trump supporter. So, I mean, it's a lot of this is political posturing, and clearly Democrats have sort of won taking the correct high ground, because, I mean, it's... Republicans are clearly, at least from an official party stance, they are backing Roy Moore, which is, quite frankly, for lack of a better term, deplorable. But let's not pretend that there's anything less than political expedience. The whole Al Franken move, I mean, he didn't even say when he was going to resign. It's sort of this, it's not quite a, it's not, an, it's not a guarantee, you know? I mean, I would be curious to see if and when Roy Moore does, want, does win, especially given the uh, revelations today with the yearbook, but more on that in a minute, um, I would not be surprised if Al Franken reneged on his promise to resign from the Senate. Because, I mean, I could easily see him say, oh, if Roy Moore is going to be in, why should I leave? Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, I'm glad that the Democrats are doing the right thing, but let's not delude ourselves as to why they're doing it. I mean, at this point, I wouldn't necessarily discount um, Senator Franken's statement in the sense that, okay, yes, there's the option that he could potentially not resign, but I don't think anyone necessarily goes up in front of that many people on a nationwide news conference, says those things with that amount of severity and seriousness and effect on his political career, um, and then just flips a switch and turns back. But he basically said that he didn't believe the women, you know? I mean, okay, I'm... I'm not saying that that Chuck Schumer isn't directing the right things. And, I mean, as someone who has voted more Republican in the past, but obviously does not really align with the Republican leadership, Democratic leadership is a lot better about getting, you know, like, everyone in order. I mean, let's, like, everyone came out with the same Franken should resign within a matter of minutes. Everyone was tweeting out the same thing. So Democratic leadership definitely is a little bit more organized than Republican leadership. But this was a top-down order. This was not about Franken's conscience being awakened in any way. But, but like, does it matter if it was a top-down order or not? Because at the end of the day, you know, 
people are saying that the Democrats did this move because they wanted to look as if they were taking the moral high ground. But what's become wrong with the moral high ground? For whatever, yes, it may be politically expedient for Senator Franken to resign in light of the recent endorsement of Roy Moore, who is an accused child molester by eight women. Um, Yes, it might play into their hand, but what's wrong with that? Because it is still taking the moral high ground. And I think that's what we've lost sight of in politics in the U.S. I don't think that there's anything wrong with it, per se. I think the 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 terrible moment when everyone loses thanks to all this whataboutism is when Roy Moore is seated in the Senate, is not expelled, and Al Franken reneges on his promise to resign because he says, well, if the other guy's staying, then so am I. And that's when America loses. The Republicans don't lose, the Democrats don't lose, because this is this duopoly of, you know, a prisoner's dilemma where everyone's going to continue to do the worst possible thing just to hold on to power, and the American citizen loses. I think we're almost deflecting the argument here. It's it's as if that, you know, Al Franken has given this, you know, alleged resignation speech, um, which I actually personally thought was well done. Um, and we're already talking about, okay, well, if he doesn't resign. Well, there's a whole other side of this where there's one candidate that actually hasn't resigned from the race and has arguably more damning allegations. And instead of not resigning, the GOP has actually just endorsed him. They could have chose chosen to put their hands up, stay out of it, but instead they actually took an even more aggressive stance. Oh, okay, so I think so that's the thing that we should really be talking about at this point. There, there, there are two issues with what the GOP did. There's Okay, so there's one, which is the issue of PR, and there's another that's the issue of like actual ethics. When it comes to PR, they chose the worst possible trajectory. To withdraw their endorsement, wait for Trump to double down on his endorsement, and then re-endorse, that's letting the tail wag the dog. Because realistically, the party is supposed to be stronger than the president, and so they just showed that the tail wags the dog, that they listen to whatever Trump says. Issue number one. Issue number two, when it comes to principle... Issue number one also is them listening to what Trump says, too. Just on yeah, a broader level. Yeah, yeah, But, okay, but, but, but issue number two is the matter of sheer principle. Okay, I think that there is a case to be made, one that I do not disagree with because it's an intellectually lazy argument and not real. You can make the case Roy Moore is an evil person, who was credibly accused by multiple people of sexual misconduct with underage girls. But because Doug Jones is pro-abortion, because he might pose a massive hindrance towards the Republican agenda because the Republican margin in the Senate is so slim, you have to vote for Roy Moore to vote against Doug Jones. This is basically the same argument that I think most Republicans at the end of the general presidential election are making. Vote against, don't vote for Trump, vote against Hillary. Okay, now I disagree with this argument. If I were voting in Alabama, I would write in a candidate 100%. I would never vote for either of those two men. But that's not even the argument that they're making. They're just they're just trying to discredit basic, they're trying to discredit real journalism. And that's the, that's the problem with, I mean, Let's be real, who was the first person to peddle out the term fake news? It was Hillary after she lost the presidency. And then who turned around and reappropriated that term? Trump. And he did so very effectively. Trump stole the whole fake news excuse from her in two and a half seconds. And it's basically been um, like the main message that Breitbart and the Gateway Pundit and all these more um, Trumpian nationalist right-wing blogs have and news sites have have been sort of building all of their commentary about the mainstream media from. I guess what becomes my issue is, you know, where, what's the line morally and where is it drawn? Because the moral precedent that now is set from 
this kind of action from the GOP in terms of like, I understand the, the strategic incentive. I, I really do. And, and when you're looking for votes and especially with the political arena and, and Senate and Congress, this charged and this at odds, probably more than ever. Um, I can understand the strategic advantage there. However, you know what, you got to start asking yourself at what cost, at what cost to the integrity of the party, at what cost to the people, to the people, to the people who, you know, are alleging these allegations against Roy Moore, at what cost is a Senate vote to, you know, potential criminal behavior? And at what cost is a Senate vote to, you know, potential immorality in, in the heart of the Republican Party and, and endorsing a candidate that, that this, is this what they stand for? Is this what, who they want to put their backing behind? And, and that's the issue, right? And I think that, Democrats, you know, however advantageous it might it might have been in lieu of, um, you know, Trump and the and the and the GOP coming behind more, um, they've set the pre- set the precedent for their party, and you can't really say anything about um, their immorality. But you, there's a lot to be said about the Republican Party, and and this is something. This is a decision that could follow them for a long time. What I assume what will happen is if and when Roy Moore wins potentially then is when they'll call for his resignation so that they can replace that seat with another another Republican. But I don't even think that is how uh, it should have been brought about in the first place. Well, I mean, okay, this is terrible strategy. I mean, if you're playing an incredibly short-term game, this, okay, this would be very different. I mean, even from the purely strategic argument that completely defies or ignores morality, which I don't think should ever be ignored, especially when it comes to governing the American people. Yeah. One could argue, okay, if you had... Democratic executive, Democratic House, and Republican Senate, and if you needed to maintain a Republican Senate in order to blockade a specific agenda, yeah, sure, okay, I, I guess you could make that argument. Again, I don't know if I'd go along with it if it's someone who's credibly accused of child molestation, but that's not even the case here. We still have Pence as a tiebreaker. We'll still, we'll probably gain another, we'll, we will, I mean, the Republican Party will definitely gain other Senate seats in the 2018 midterms. So just this idea that this is this is the hill that the GOP is willing to die on, this will be Roy Moore's face, and not only Roy Moore's face, but also things that other prominent Republicans, including and up to Ivanka Trump, saying that people who harm children deserve a special place in hell, that will be the centerpiece of every single Democratic ad going into the 2018 midterms. This is, this is a total Faustian bargain. You're gaining 20 years of necromancy for a lifetime in hell. 100%. But then you look at it from that sense, and that's kind of, you know, the ra- like a rational perspective. Um, one could assume even that from this decision, you could lose some Republican voters who are moderate and, and maybe, you know, can't stand for this kind of spinelessness, for lack of a better word. But then, you know, you look at um, polling data, you know, CBS News released um, a poll on, on those who believe the allegations against Moore, and 71% of Republicans in the state of Alabama believe those allegations to be false. What is the over-under on women coming out against an alleged sexual harasser for people to start believing that and for people to take that seriously? We've had eight women come out with some very serious allegations, some of, you know, all the recent allegations uh, in terms of sexual harassment, even between, you know, Hollywood to news media to to politics. This has been some of the harshest allegations, and yet 71% of Republicans in the state of Alabama don't believe that? I mean, okay, a lot of this has to do with, all right, the mainstream media, they get a lot of flack, some of it deserved, some of it not deserved. When you have stories like the CNN story that was debunked today, a major story that was basically above the fold for CNN's homepage and was advertised heavily on their primetime news hour. 
be totally debunked, it discredits the mainstream media. And the, and as someone who believes in the importance of journalism as the fourth estate and as a check and a balance on the American government, it hurts everyone when the media is discredited, but also when they don't do their jobs properly. Now, with the Washington Post story, they did an incredible job of explaining all the sourcing. I would agree. Exp- and, okay, when you look at sexual assault or sexual harassment allegations, the main things you have to look into are... When did the per okay, so what is the allegation? You know, number one. Two, because sexual assault is something that has so little material evidence, you have to look at the circumstantial evidence. Did they tell people at the time? In the first Washington Post story, they had dozens of people who could corroborate that these women came to them at the time and said that these things happened. Yes. To me, that seems like I mean, I think that that's the number one thing that I look for in terms of um, verifying it. Unless if you have, in the Al Franken case with Leanne Tweeden, unless if you have photographic evidence. But that's so rare. But I mean, at the how same many times time, that also, you know, as the public or even as politicians and as, you know, leaders of political parties, we aren't in the position, posi- wow, sorry, the position of lawmakers. We're not in the position of law enforcement. Um, and it's not necessarily our job to go through the case and say, oh, well, based on these facts, based on when she came out, this is what I believe to be credible and this is what I believe not to be credible. Credible, And I think there is an importance in, you know, believing these accusers and believing these women that have come out. And regardless of, you know, some people calling this a witch hunt as of late with the amount that has come out and this kind of floodgate that's opened, it is still important to believe these women. I mean, I think it's trust but verify. I forget who said that, but I know that's a phrase that's been floating around. I don't think it's believe all women under any circumstances at any time. Because, I mean, the fact is, is that I could tell you right now the sky is red and the sky still wouldn't be red, but I could say, believe me. That being said, the amount of women who lie about sexual assault, it's an incredibly small number. And I know that, especially on my side of the aisle, people like to say that it's a much greater number than I think that it is. Realistically, there are very few benefits to alleging sexual assault and a lot of impediments that you face in terms of verifying those allegations but that being said i think that trust but verify is important now everyone keeps on trying to make this due process argument now we are not a court of law no we are not going to examine every single piece of evidence but that being said i think that there is a i think that everyone especially if you're going to be someone who's civically engaged and civically minded and going to cast a ballot for someone who has been accused of something i think it's important to say who is the person making the allegation are there any other corroborating witnesses who just said that at the time that they heard about it? And is there too much of a political motivation? Or is there, you know... I mean, like, the issue with the Leon Tweeden thing, um, what Mika Brzezinski was saying this morning was that, oh, she's a Trump supporter, so she should be ignored. Obviously, that's not it. But yes, should you take, like, a second look just to make sure? Now, with her case, there is a photo of Al Franken groping her breasts while she's sleeping. I don't think that there's too much to have to you know, verify. You know, I think that one's just sort of trust the photo, trust what you can see with your own eyes. But in all these other cases, I mean, as a registered Republican woman, the the tragedy of the Roy Moore situation is that we are turning our backs on all these Republican women. I mean, the the first uh, accuser, uh, the, or the, the first most serious accuser, Lee Korfman, the one who was 14 when he basically tried to molest her, and uh, Beverly Young Nelson from the yearbook story that we'll go into in a second. Um, they're, they're both conservative Trump voters. 
They're both Republican women. Exactly. And, so and, and we are turning there? our... We're, exactly. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's necessary. Obviously, a Republican can rape a Democrat and vice versa. This can happen. But when you take away all potential nefarious motivation, what reason do you have not to believe? You know? And I know everyone will say fake news, MSM, Washington Post, you know, like, establishment agenda. Yeah, okay. Obviously, the Washington Post... They openly endorsed Doug Jones. That I mean, their editorial team did, not their news team, you know. But the Washington Post is not going to put their credibility on a stake and make exactly. up sources who are corroborating allegations from 40 years ago. Yeah, well, also, I think it's import- important those those thoughts that you bring up in terms of, you know, understanding where is this coming from? Have there been other sources and other women that have come forward and had these similar stories and, and understanding political motivation behind things? I mean, I hate kind of the feeling that you get in the sense that you get in terms of um, this blind support of partisanship. You know, potentially, you know, these 71 uh, Republicans that are in Alabama, um, 71% that are choosing to believe these allegations to be false um, because of party ties. Okay, and but- don't get me wrong, like, I, I faced my own you know, inner conflict when I found out that Senator Al Franken um, had these allega- allegations against him. You know, myself as someone who has admired um, Senator Al Franken you know, as a political science major and, and studying um, him and his work and as a champion for women's rights, and he has been a senator and a politician in which... Um, I've read a lot of the pieces that he's done. I've, I've followed his legislation and his career, and and I, I admired him, to be honest. So it hit me very hard when I heard that these allegations came out. Um, and I faced this conflict. I think it's easy to, you know, point the finger when it's at uh, someone whose ideology doesn't line up with yours. It's easy for me to point the finger at a Republican and, and say they should be out of office. Like, that's awful whenever an allegation comes out against them. But it really forces you to self-reflect and check yourself when it's someone that you know, you closely admire. Um, but even then, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to believe the allegations and then you hear and uh, yeah. all these stories and it, it's, it's hard not to, and you, and you do have to, have to, have to roll with it. Okay. So, so, so that's statistic, the 71% of Alabama Republicans not believing the story. Okay. So there's a major, major, major con and there's a major pro the con. Okay. So I, I'm going to start off with the pro. The pro meaning that when Roy Moore does win, which you definitely will after today, Mm -hmm. I do want to get to the Gloria Alred thing in a second. Um, The pro being that when he does win, it's not because a bunch of people from Alabama are suddenly okay with child molestation. It's because they literally don't believe the story. Yeah. Okay, so that is better from a moral aspect and it's probably worse for civic republic. Yes. Okay, and it's problematic worse. for the yeah. voting population yeah. of yeah. America to it, say it, 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 it's it's problematic to be, to to realize that we have that journalism, the fourth estate, our primary check on the United States government has such a credibility issue. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's why So yeah, I mean, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag because obviously I would rather have the people of Alabama hate the media instead of support child molesters. You know, I mean, I I hope that everyone can have that assessment. But we have a real loss of faith in journalism as a trade. And I understand when specific journalists, when their credibility is undermined by them not checking their sources, by them rushing to hit publish rather than fact check. I understand that, and I think that it's important to read all news pieces with a discerning eye. Exactly. But this sort of wide... It used to be, 
everyone sort of agreed on the same set of facts and then their interpretations were different. For instance, I mean, you and I, like, I think that less taxes are better for the economy and you probably, I'm assuming, believe differently. Yes. You know, <laughs> um, but, but we can at least still agree on like what the taxes are right At the now, same time you know? also, it, it comes from a rationale rooted in, you know, research and not just something that's a blind opinion. But, but it, opinion aside, the issue is that we can't even agree on a set of facts. Mm-hmm. If we're all are all living on different reality, I mean, the fake news issue. I know that when BuzzFeed came out with the expose after um, after the twenty sixteen election over what like sites were like were shared. I mean, it's such a pervasive problem on both sides of the aisle. Like, I mean, how many people allege that like. After the New York Times, that one, it was the weekend over Thanksgiving, the New York Times came out with two stories. One story was about Ben Shapiro and his appeal on college campuses and how, like, millennials really like him. It was just a news story. It wasn't even an opinion story. And the second story was also a news story, and it was about, it was about, like, an American, modern American Nazi, and it was just trying to show, like, how they live among us. And you can argue that, oh, I didn't like the angle of either of the stories, like, I would have covered it differently but I straight up saw people on the left saying that the New York Times were, were right-wing hacks. The fact that objective news stories, that you can have an intellectual opposition to how they were framed, that basically you just have the equivalent of fake news. I mean, it's it's happening from the far left and from the far right, These the term fake news just being thrown out. And the problem is that social media has made it so pervasive, so a totally fake story can be shared all the time. But it's not the it's not the entirety of the New York Times. At it's the not the time, entirety of the Washington Post. At the same time, too, let's not put this necessarily solely on journalism and maybe the lack of credibility that they've um, exposed themselves with, or even just been, you know, kind of rumored about as of late. The onerous at the end of the day comes upon the people. When when you're reading a story, see it for what it is. And trust I think, but verify. Exactly, trust but verify. And. And I think the thing that is extremely troublesome is there's a vast population in this country, and, you know, I'm guilty of it at times, too. You read a story with a flashy headline that coincides with what you want to hear, and and you take that as fact when really everything else and everything else that you can actually see from a not-super-opinionated point of view is telling you otherwise. Um, But it's important when you're making these decisions of who's who's going to represent the state, who's going to represent the country, you know, take a step back and and see this from a broader perspective. And, and, you know, as adults who are able to vote, able to legally vote in America, they need to start taking that responsibility. We all need to start taking yeah. that responsibility I mean, rather than blaming it on this fake news. I know, see I know, it for I, know it I know. Well, it's, it, okay, it, 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 it's a crisis of journalism partially. It's also a crisis of education. 100%. I mean, okay, probably, I don't know, maybe you won't, well, maybe you won't disagree with me on this. I think that the idea that we do not teach the notion of Western civics in elementary schools and in middle schools, and, like, I mean, we think, like, civics used to be a widely taught subject. Now we've sort of shafted it, and, you know, we focus on other things. I'm pretty sure at this point, I'm sure the fifth graders are learning about social justice. The issue is that we need to teach children how these things work, because instead people just say, oh, an opinion piece is fake news. Sean Hannity is fake news. Sean Hannity is a commentator who you can disagree with widely, but he's not trying to be a reporter, oh, you know? Oh, I 100% agree. And at the same time, like, any left-wing media site is not telling you strictly the news. They're inserting their own commentary, and they're not lying about that. But if you don't understand, like, how the fourth estate as, as a domain works, then of course you're going to just think it's fake news. And, I mean, that's, like, a greater 
crisis of education. But, oh, I, I mean, can tell you. Absolutely. Yeah. With, all the, with all the things that I learned um, in middle school and high school, there are plenty of things that are not relevant to me today and that I could have gone without. I can tell you I have not used my 11th grade physics education for absolutely <laughs> anything that I've studied in college. Um, yet I have used the little knowledge that I came into college with in terms of civics um, immensely. Yeah. And yeah. I think the issue is, you know, not to get too much into education, but with the education system is they're not looking at it from a broad perspective in terms of, okay, what's going to make people great citizens to make great choices. They're looking at it for specialization and, and to fit this, this arbitrary mold. Yeah. Um, and this should be something that should be looked at and eventually kind of repealed and replaced and yeah. figured out. I mean, to back up for just a second, um, before we move on to your next topic with, I mean, this actually kind of ties in perfectly with sort of trust in the media. So, um, today it broke that, Beverly Young Nelson, so basically the second most significant Roy Moore accuser, the one who alleges that when she was 16, working at a steakhouse, and she had known Roy Moore previously, he picked her up to, like, give her a lift home, basically attempts to rape her in his car. She leaves. So one of the pieces of evidence that she provided to prove that she knew him was this yearbook inscription where he writes this note to her that's overly familiar for a grown man and a 16-year-old girl, signs it Roy Moore DA, and then underneath there's a date and a location. And uh, she did her first press conference with Gloria Allred last month. And Gloria Allred, okay, I know the feminist lover. I know she's, like, in, like, the Gloria Steinman, like, class of feminism. But she's also a hack, and, and she's not only a hack, but today it was proven I, she's... I wouldn't go that far. Okay, I wouldn't okay go that today far. it's also proven that she's bad at her job. Because today, um, in an interview with uh, ABC's Good Morning America, Beverly Young Nelson reveals that she was the one who wrote down the the date and the location, which people were obviously... There were, there were yearbook truthers on the far right. A bunch of Republicans in Alabama saying, the yearbook's totally forged. Now... If she had just from the get-go said, oh, I just wrote the note on underneath just to keep tabs on, just so I could remember for, like, my own personal records, it would have been fine. You know, I mean, people leave notes on notes all the time anyway. But instead, this only came out today. Gloria Allred is an attorney. She should have told her to say this from the beginning. Gloria Allred wouldn't submit the yearbook to an independent hand, handwriting anal- analyst. Um, and then on top of that, this is where the media needs to start doing their job a little bit better. In this interview with Beverly Young Nelson, GMA doesn't even say, like, okay, so can you explain, when did you write this down? Why did you do that? I mean, like, you don't even need to ask leading questions. It could be as simple as, all right, I understand you might need to, like, keep this for your documentation. When did you write it down? But instead, they didn't even do that. They just sort of accepted it. And now, you have conspiracy theories running rampant. Oh, yeah. You have the same way you had, the same way you had, like, Obama was born in Kenya truthers, you now have the yearbook was forged truthers. And that's just another way that, you know, I mean, we, the media needs to start doing their job. It needs to not be discredited because it's so important to have trust in an independent verifier of the news. But I don't know. That's, that was just sort of the, I don't know, a a tragedy for journalism. But, um, yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. Moving on though. Um, (laughs) you know, kind of to give everyone a perspective on our backgrounds and, and how this all came about, I think that would be important. Yeah, who are we? <laughs> in terms of just understanding where us? we're coming from. Um, but, okay, so to introduce myself, I'm Avery. I am a political science major at the University of Southern California, um, and I'm currently a campaign intern on Pat Harris's campaign for U.S. Senate. He's running as a progressive Democrat in the state of California against uh, Feinstein's seat. Um, and so Tiana and I kind of met... 
from both being very politically active on campus. Um, I was originally trying to get Pat Harris slated uh, to talk on campus, to give a speech to the students, and I found that to be very difficult, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily find at, in uh, a university community, except uh, we ran into a bunch of obstacles along the way, so that's when Tiana and I kind of joined forces. Yeah. So, hi, I'm Tiana. I am from Southern California, spent my entire life around limousine liberals and champagne socialists, so it's kind of <laughs> a miracle that I'm a conservative, or maybe that is why I'm a conservative. Yeah, so... I'm a mathematics and economics major at the University of Southern California. I've been previously published in National Review, the now defunct Heat Street. I've done a lot of local LA journalism, but my primary beat is a conservative economic and political commentary. Yeah, so um, I was in contact with uh, Austin Peterson's campaign. He is challenging Claire McCaskill for Senate. Uh, You might know him as... uh, the libertarian presidential runner-up for 2016, and now he's running as a Republican in the great state of Missouri. Is Missouri a great state? I heard it's really cold. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it seems really cold. That's that's the thing I can't get over. Um, so, yeah. So I was in contact with him, and uh, I'm friends with a lot of the people at the journalism school here because even though I'm not a journalism major, obviously that's sort of what I'm doing, and I know a lot of them. And they told me that you couldn't host an event with one candidate, and luckily that's when Avery and I were becoming really good friends, and she was telling me about working on the Harris campaign, and I said, okay, all right, so they want diversity, ideological diversity as a thing, so you know, you could have this progressive Democrat versus this libertarian Republican, which is cool because, I mean, I identify basically as a libertarian conservative, you know, if I, I tend to vote Republican. And myself as a liberal Democrat, so opposite sides of the spectrum to an extent. Yeah, and so I'm a board member at USC's Young Americans for Liberty chapter, and so I approached Annenberg, they were, we were so lucky to get the green light from them, which basically happened because they trusted me because they knew me and because we presented a really strong pitch and if you can't tell already tiana and i are not really people that take no for an answer yeah yeah (laughs) it it, it was an absolute bureaucratic hellhole from like an administrative perspective god bless usc annenberg for helping us when the rest of the university would not um so it was it was a success um we'll put the link to the debate if you guys want to check it out in our bio but it was a great debate i moderated it was um about 70 minutes of questioning 20 minutes of audience questions fielded um during the debate we got around 14,000 views on Facebook. Yeah, on the Facebook yeah. Live and then more afterwards. Yeah, so. so I mean, it was it was really interesting. It was, and it was definitely a lesson for us in how much, how top-down major bureaucracies are, you know? Exactly, even like, at the education level, yeah. which you would think that they would encourage student involvement. I mean, this is the one of the more libertarian opinions I have, but academia is not um, conducive to to organizing. I don't know, organizing of any kind. Academia likes the status quo. So, I mean, that was really the inspiration for this podcast, how difficult it was to put on this event and how, I mean, one of the things that Annabelle kept on telling us was we don't really have student-ran events. And I, I know that's not their fault. I know that has to do with higher up people and with like external factors in the university and like an image that they have to maintain. The but irony the fact, though is yeah. that the university runs on students. Yeah, no, so it's, it was just kind of, there was so much, um, what's, there's so much resistance to, to students organizing, running, and maintaining an event that it was sort of like, how can we get more 
people our age engage. Because, yeah, are millennials lazy on the whole? A little bit. Are the millennials who are represented in the media incredibly lazy on the whole? Absolutely. Um, but we want to sort of re-engage people back into the process. Um, and I think through that, um, you know, if anything, it was kind of an interesting afternoon being able to discuss political ideas without the animosity that comes when running in an election mm-hmm. head-to-head. It was interesting to have, you know, Austin Peterson, who is a libertarian Republican, and then have Pat Harris, who's a pro- progressive Democrat, but have them, you know, finally just debate the ideas and yeah. not debate each other and attack each other's character. And I think also what spoke to the fact that we were able to put that event on and have it be very successful um, is the fact that, you know, our, our friendship, uh, mine and Tiana's, has become one that is amazing and kind of out of the blue because we come yeah. from opposite sides of the political spectrum, yet we're able to get along, we're able to have, you know, great political discussions and always find a common ground and at least something we can yeah. agree upon. And I think, you know, looking at the political arena right now and how it's so charged, that's not necessarily something that's happening in D.C. and government necessarily isn't, um, you know, functioning how it should. So if we can have these conversations and get along and understand where each other are coming from, I think that should send a message and should set a precedent that that's what should be taking place yeah. all over the map politically. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, the questions were, I mean, they were heavy enough where people have very emotionally charged reactions to them. It was about, is healthcare right? Is someone else's labor your right? How do you pay for something like this? What yep. spending needs to be cut? Is it important to platform extremists on both sides or engage with them and try and win over their vote? And the fact that you have this very far left Democrat and you have this very libertarian Republican engaging with ideas, but acknowledging the, that the other person has the right to speak. It's sad to say, but today that's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, now you, you know, like that they agreed upon yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it was nice. They, they, there was a lot of overlap on criminal justice reform. There was a lot of overlap on sort of like the role of the establishment. That was yep. obviously the angle. It was about sort of these grassroots movements from the left and from the right. But I don't know. It's just, it's sad, but now it is radical to believe that everyone has a right to speak and that everyone has a right to be heard. And that's what this podcast is about. Hopefully we will have guests on in the future who represent opinions that neither of us do, you know, and that we can engage with and challenge and be challenged by. But really the spirit of this is open discourse, intellectual honesty, and really, yes, interpersonal politics, but also the bigger ideas, So um, we're really glad to uh, launch this, and hopefully you guys can engage, leave comments, let us know what we can be doing better. Um, But yeah, so that's the gist of it. But enough about us, because you guys don't want to hear about us that much. Uh, Let's move on to the Supreme Court this week. Yes, okay, so it's the... a crazy case. Yeah, okay, so it's the Masterpiece Cake Shop case versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So this is the one, if you've heard the, well, does a Christian baker need to bake a cake for your gay wedding? Well... Ding, ding, ding. That's where we're at. <laughs> okay, so the the basic premise of it is that um, this guy, I think it's his name is John Phillips. Um, Phillips is a not only cake baker, but also a cake designer. And he was approached by a gay couple who not only wanted to buy a cake, but they wanted him to decorate the cake for their gay wedding. And this was in Colorado before gay marriage was legalized. This was a couple of years back before Obergefell, um, before Colorado itself legalized gay marriage. So technically, so technically at the time they were asking Phillips to design a cake for a wedding that was not even legally recognized. I'm pointing that out just because I know that everyone's been pointing to the Obergefell ruling. And I think it's important to note that at the time, Gay marriage wasn't even recognized in Colorado. Okay, that being said. So, Philip said that he would sell the cake to the gay couple. 
he just would not decorate it with the two like men figure and like to celebrate it because Phillips is a very devout Christian. Um, it's something that he, I don't think he, I don't even think previously he would sell a cake to a divorced couple who was remarrying, you know, or to someone who's divorced who's remarrying. So very devout. It's very consistent. So there are basic, there are two basic angles. So now it's being seen and now it's being discussed and reviewed by the Supreme court. And, uh, they've had, I think two days of oral arguments this far. But the the main issue being, all right. So does Phillips has the ne- does Phillips have the negative right to decline to use his right to free speech to endorse basically this couple's lifestyle? Does he, as a business owner and as an artist of cakes, does he have the right to say I can withhold or express my speech whenever and however I please? And in this case, I want to withhold it and. Being forced to do so is a violation of my free association, free speech mm-hmm. rights. And then there's also the argument to say that the gay couple has positive consumer rights to purchase a cake and not be discriminated against. So it's it's the reason why it's against Colorado Civil Rights Commission is because they're the ones who said, no, Phillips needs to decorate the cake. And on top of that, they mandated that Phillips institutes re-education for his employees on gay-friendly language. And that, to me, is when this gets really Orwellian. So let's talk about our stances on it. Yes. Okay. I guess Avery. the big question. Avery, I didn't kick it off. Exactly. So, well, you know, the question remains here. Should the baker have to design the cake and should the baker sell them the cake? Um, you know, actually, to be honest, this is a, a bit of a troubling question for me and a troubling answer. Um, as someone who identifies under kind of the LGBT umbrella, um, one would think that I would side with the couple. However, I, I'm conflicted. You know, I understand... Um, the notion for religious freedom and and being able to exercise um, your religious beliefs however you you choose. But at the same time, I also understand from the consumer's point of view and from the couple's point of view, being able to go into a store, purchase an item that he would, you know, otherwise make for a straight couple and be able to still have that item just like any other couple would. I mean, for instance, someone who goes into a store is not going to be denied um, being able to purchase a product because they're African-American or of any other, you know, minority group. Um, so I think it's a tough one. And I think it'll be interesting also with the Supreme Court because the the justices are split where they really do decide on this. Um, I can see it from both sides. And I know that's probably not the answer that, that you want. And I just... Uh, no, it's nuanced. It's, it's exactly it's, the answer that I want. It's tough. <laughs> I, it, it is. It's very nuanced. And that's why we do have a Supreme Court and we have these justices. And um, I think what's interesting and what's kind of nice about this case coming through the pipeline at the time that it has is that the court is split. So you can't necessarily say that, you know, the decision was made one way because we have a Republican majority on, on the bench or the decision was made the other way because we have a Democratic majority on the bench. Really, I think the precedent that will be set by this case is one that can be agreed upon, hopefully, by both sides. But you know, it, it is tough. I, I would like to see a world where people could go in no matter what the store may be and be able to be served regardless of their sexuality or w- however they may identify. Um, yet I also understand the deep-rooted precedent set in the Constitution on religious freedom. And, and so from a legal perspective, I say that, but you know what, from my own personal opinion, I would say, you know, I would hope that if I went into a cake shop and, and, and wanted a cake for a same-sex marriage, that and, and knowing that this baker makes beautiful cakes and I had been planning the wedding as everyone does and everyone really cherishes that moment that I could have whatever I wanted yeah. as an American citizen. And I think in terms of my preferences, my ideals and ideologies, 
that is the America that I want to see. However, recognizing it from a legal perspective, I understand that's not necessarily where we're living, but do I think that he should have made the cake for them? On a personal side, yes. I mean, um, okay, so as, as as a conservative who supports uh, same-sex monogamy, or who supports monogamy of any two consenting adults, um, this is where I love capitalism and where I love uh, the court of public opinion because... The way I see it, no, I, I don't think that that the the state has the right or the ability to force a private business to do to serve anyone who they want, you know? I mean, if this were if this were a cake shop who said we are going to serve Jews, you know, I would say, All right, yeah, you know, you're not allowed to serve Jews, and I'm also allowed to go and yelp, tell everyone that you're an anti Semitic bigot and that no one should go to your store. I mean, okay, this shop has seen a forty percent decline in, in business. And that's the way I think it's supposed to work. I mean, honestly, if I were queer and if I were trying to purchase a cake, I wouldn't even want to vote with my dollars to support someone who didn't support me, you know? So it's this is one where capitalism is amazing because you get to express and support businesses that you approve of morally and where you can decline to do so for ones that you don't approve of. And everyone keeps on talking about this from the religious freedom angle, but I think it's even simpler than that. I mean, in in Los Angeles, especially in like the Arts District in downtown and WeHo, how many stores do we pass that have the signs that say like like all members of the gender spectrum welcome? Like and there's I've seen I, I've seen at least at least in the last like month I've seen three or four stores that have something like anti-Trump like like if you hate like you're not welcome like if you just want to oh, make really? America I've not seen those. I, like I've seen like two in like the arts district once one in Miho and you know what I think I think that's the right and I think that if like Republicans want to break their Keurig machines because they think that they're not like represented by Keurig that's fine and I think that if I think that if every single, like, queer ally wants to write, like, a one-star Yelp review and warn everyone what they're supporting when they're voting with their dollars for the Master P Cake Shop, that's also their right. I just don't think that it's the right of the state. And not, and I also just don't think that we need it. We're not in a situation... We have such a globalized economy where it's not like anyone in modern America is deprived of service because one person down the street won't give it to them. You know? hundred percent. And I think, you know, I completely understand your argument and I understand it from the consumer capitalistic side of things. At the end of the day, it's my choice where I decide to go, who I decide to buy a cake from or any other thing for that matter. So at the end of the day, like for the people who decided to use that cake shop in Colorado, could they have gone to a different store? Absolutely. Of course they could have. I understand that freedom from our side and why we do have that freedom and why it's great and why that's a great element of capitalism. But where I kind of, I guess, get lost is as much as the consumer has that freedom, the store owners in terms of the law and constitutionally, it's not, they don't have the freedom of, I don't think they should have the freedom at least of being able to pick and choose who they sell to. Yes, as the consumer, that's our privilege. We get to pick and choose who we buy from, but pick and choosing who you sell from, that's where it gets a little dicey for me. Um, You know, if you're going to open the doors to your shop, you should be willing to serve anyone. And I say should be. And is that the case? Maybe not necessarily. We'll see how this rules. But I, in terms of what I believe, I think that's what should be the case. I, I, think, I think this baker, should, if he's going to open his doors and sell products, it shouldn't matter who you are. Okay, I think that's a very fair moral argument. Honestly, I mean, I'm socially libertarian enough to think that 
It doesn't matter what religion you are. If you're declining to sell for someone because they're doing something with another consenting adult, that probably means that I wouldn't want to hang out with you. It probably means I wouldn't want to give money to your business. But I think it's within your legal right, and I think that that's important to have. Yeah. This is, okay, to, to sort of loop back in the sexual assault thing, all right, so let's see. Weinstein, Halperin, Spacey, Russell Simmons, all guys, out. Out as soon as the allegations broke. Private sector. Out Government. In, out in terms of oh, out of out, their jobs. Out, out, out as an out of their jobs. Out <laughs> as an out the of their jobs. Okay. When you have all these senators and uh, congressional representatives being accused of sexual assault, they're still in. You know? I mean, it takes so much to get them out. I mean... And we're now, on, we're now unearthing how many hundreds of thousands of dollars have been spent on settlements to pay off these women who have been sexually harassed and discriminated against. The private sector does everything better than the public sector. And that includes exposing bigotry. If you really want to fight bigotry, you vote with your dollars. Well, I think the problem is with the public sector and, and you know, kind of the government apparatus is it's so institutionalized that it is almost so hard to get these people out. Like, you, the private sector, yeah. because it's this capitalistic society, every anyone can because be Because every consumer any, has a voice, and exactly. that makes it so much superior. But yet, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, every every voter has a voice, but in these instances where, you know, these people have already been elected, I guess I used also, my voice however many months ago when I voted, exactly, but exactly. now what, my voice is irrelevant once they're in no, office, exactly. which is a big issue that we're facing. Exactly. Yeah. Every voter has a voice once every four years, maybe, you know? Potentially, we'll see even, you know, this might be a little radical and idealistic, but perhaps as a result of this, there will be a change made in the sense that when these allegations come out, the public has an opportunity to revote on candidates and yeah. and e- vote to either keep them in office or vote to not. Um, you know, for instance, if Roy Moore does get elected and, for instance, if Franken does stand, in a perfect world, I would like to see that choice be left to the public and left to the voters of Minnesota and left to the voters of Alabama. And based on the allegations, they decide if they stay, they decide if they go, but that's not the world we're living in. I think that you're making a very good case for the Masterpiece Cake Shop right now. <laughs> no, okay, but in the end, in the end, I, I can talk about capitalism, I can talk about voting with your dollars, but what it really does come down to is about your freedom of association, what the Constitution guarantees you, what is the highest right of the land. And in the end, I think it is that you, the government cannot be made to force you to associate with anyone. Perhaps, you know, we'll see how this all plays out. Um... Looks like we should start winding this down. Um, We have to get on with our Friday evening, and so do you guys probably. Uh, But come back next Friday and check your SoundCloud feeds for a new episode that will undoubtedly have no shortage of dramatics after this next week on the Hill, given what's happened so far. Yeah, okay, so have a good weekend, and remember, don't let politics drive you too insane.